off a few weeks ago. If you remember, I talked about the outworkings, uh, the outworkings of a dead heart from John chapter 7. We looked at verses 1 through 24, and we showed four outworkings of a dead heart. So we're going to go back to chapter 7, looking through verses 1 through 24 to extract from that text the things that we did not address the first time through. So John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. And the way that I'm going to walk through this is just kind of breaking it down piece by piece as we go uh, to A, remind us of this narrative, but also to pull out or to stop and pull out certain points that I want to highlight. So uh, follow with me as we read through this. It won't take but a moment. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. After this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about about him among the people, while some said he's a good man, others said no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether his teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. That is from Moses, but from, uh, I'm sorry, Moses, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge me or do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So you get the scene. This festival, this feast is taking place called the Feast of Booths. It's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Explain that in a moment because it's kind of a neat occasion that happens in Israel. So they've all gathered for this feast. The brothers who don't believe are saying, hey, Going up there and do this, probably a little bit of sordid gain going. Maybe they had uh, some stock in his miracles. Maybe if he were to go and prove himself, maybe because of their association to him, there might be some good dividends that would come their way. It might be something good that they can benefit from if Jesus you know, performs these miracles and does all these good things. I don't know that. That's what some might suggest, but there's just nothing that says very clearly you know, what the hidden agenda might have been of the brothers. It just says that they didn't believe. Maybe they wanted to believe. Maybe they were being sarcastic. I don't know. 
But at the end of the day, it says that the brothers wanted him to go up there. They wanted him to perform these miracles. Hey, why keep yourself in secret if you want to be known? Show to the world who you are if you are indeed who you say that you are. And Jesus says, I'm not going to go. So that's, so that's the scene, right? And then Jesus does end up going, interestingly, even though he says, my time's not yet come. It's not time for me to go. I'll explain that in a moment, how you can reconcile the two. And then Jesus goes up there. He begins teaching. People question him. And then he goes on this uh, explanation of these weighty and meaty things that we'll uh, dive into a little bit. So let me set you up with how John sets us up with the Feast of Booths, okay? There's a lot of festivals and a lot of feasts that are recognized by the Jews, this being one of them. This one was significant, and I'm just going to read through you, read for you some of these things. So this is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of, of, of Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T. This was usually celebrated during the harvest time, which would be, uh, which would be in October or our October for them. And so this would be celebrated in our October. It was held at the end of the agricultural year. So this was harvest time. This was a time of celebration. They would come together, they would feast, and they would celebrate during this harvest time, but it was to commemorate what God had done for them in taking them from Egyptian bondage to the promised land. So this was a time to recognize God's good grace grace and his glorious works in their lives. The Sukkot was designed to remember the wilderness journey from Egypt to Canaan. It was then that God would periodically, according to the book of Leviticus 23, verses 30 through 34, well, it goes on down into 43 where it explains it, that God would cause the or call the children of Israel to go into booths or to go into these individual tabernacles. So during this time of the feast, each Israelite family was supposed to construct a sukkot or a booth and live in it for a week. Now this is... This is based on Leviticus 24, 42, or 23, 42, and 43. These booths were small, temporary shelters with thatched roofs of palm fronds and other plants. And according to one interpretation of verse 41, they were decorated with different kinds of fruit that grew in Palestine. So this is what they would do. And you say, why, why exactly would they do that? Well, each festival, the Israelites would give up their comforts. This was a time of let's let's have some perspective, let's get back to perspective and remember God's provision. When we really had nothing and we were waiting on manna, we were waiting on God to provide, every decade that passed, we were literally sitting on the edge of our seat waiting on God to provide for us. This is what they would recall. And they would do so by going to these booths and living or giving up some of their comforts. Ultimately, these booths or sukkots were for the purpose of commemorating the grace of God in delivering them from Egypt and taking them to the promised land. Now, it was during this time that Jesus' brothers sought to capitalize in some way on Jesus' power by trying to convince him to prove himself to the crowds at the festival. So that takes us to where we're going to start digging into the text. What I see here, or what in my studying, what I believe that the Lord has communicated to me is a few realities that we just need to discuss that God shows us here. Several weeks ago, we saw the realities of a dead heart. We saw the outworkings of the dead heart, how they sought to kill him, which was evidence of a dead heart. How could someone 
see Jesus and hear his teaching and, 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 and understand the things that he had done for people in terms of feeding 5,000 and all these wondrous works, and yet their response is, we want him to die. We want to kill him. You know, it, it would mean someone has to be dead in heart and devoid of spirit in order to have that kind of response. How could you hate someone like that? How could you hate works like that unless you and your heart were dead to Christ? And so the first reality is this that we see in this text, and I'll read it in a moment, is that God's timing, which is mentioned here, God's timing and God's plan for all things are really one and the same. We see God's sovereignty over time. And I think this is something that we downplay sometimes. We say it readily. Well, yeah, well, you know, God's, God's timing's perfect. And we may actually believe that. Functionally, we struggle with that, though. I mean, how many times in your life have something, has something interrupted your agenda? Has something come into your life at which you would say is the wrong time? The problem is that kind of ideology really abandons pure theology because there is no such thing as the wrong time. We say these things often as, as, as much as a travesty or a tragedy as it is to lose someone, whether they're five or 50, what do we say? They went too soon. Now, we have to believe this, as tragic as that is, as hard as that is, if the Lord does give and take away, meaning life and death, because that's what he says in the context of Job. If God does that, if he would take the five-year-old just as much as he would take the 50-year-old or the 15-year-old as much as the 100-year-old, we would say, ah, too soon, too soon. And I get that sentiment. Too soon for us, for sure. When have we ever lost someone and said, oh, finally, Maybe they were suffering, and we said, okay, finally, they're at peace. That's great. That's fine. But it's not a healthy theology to say, ah, they went at the wrong time. Because if God is the giver and the taker of life, ultimately, according to his divine will, if God does these things, as the scriptures say that he does, we have to agree that not only is his time right, but, it will not, but, but his time is a product of his perfections, of his nature. Whatever he decides to do, whenever he decides to carry something out, it is right according to God. Maybe not right according to man. Maybe not right according to what we want in our timeline. But it is ultimately right according to God. This is not always a hard and easy pill to swallow. It's just not because things enter our life all the time. We're like, this could not have come at the worst possible time. But in reality, it is the absolute best possible time that is a theological worldview that gives hope to these hard things that come into our life God doesn't say you have to understand this God presents it we believe it because it's true we say God by your grace would you show me how these things work out would you show me how these hard things have come in and I can take truth what I know and experience it in my understanding and my feeling and all of these things but if I don't I will I'll accept it and I'll receive it so here in the, in the text, if we go to verse 6, we see that Jesus makes a reference to time. He makes a reference to there being a right time and appointed time. Listen to verse 6. The brothers have asked him to go to the feast, and he says, my time has not yet come. This is not the first time Jesus has said this. This is a common theme in the book of John. Do you remember that he has already said this to his mother at the wedding at Cana when the wine ran out? Interestingly, she comes up to him, and she says, Jesus... The wine is out. She's probably in a tizzy. She's probably a bit frantic. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. 
And it begs the question, time for what? It's not my time to fill the, fill the pots back up with wine? It does beg the question, which we'll see in a moment. He says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Most, most scholars agree that what Jesus means here when he says your time is always here, that they can, they can go up to the festival at any point that they want. There are those that would say that, that you will always have time to, to desire or to, to achieve the affirmation of the world. Those of the world will applaud those who are of the world. So you always have time, you know, to, to, to have yourself and your, and your uh, not self, well, self-righteousness, you know, to, to feed your desire to be affirmed, to be puffed up, to be built up. There are those that would argue that maybe that's what he's saying because they're saying, Jesus, go and be affirmed. He's saying, hey, if, if that's what you're looking for, for the world to affirm you in your darkness, in your lostness, it's always there. And although that sentiment is true, I'm not 100% saying that's what this text is saying. I'm just showing you that there's some, there's some competing opinions there. So take that, process that, think about that, consider the whole context, and... Um, and, and most likely you will land on one of those. But Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Because timing matters. Timing is everything. Timing and God's plan are one and the same thing. My son and I, we play, we play Munchkin. I don't know if you know that game. It's a, it's a board game that Tracy and Clayton introduced us to. And uh, the very first time we played it, not to not to rub it into Tracy too much, but Wesley beat Tracy, you know, uh, you know, and so Tracy got interestingly disinterested in the game once she saw the 11 year old making the comeback. But and this has been this has been the tale of the tape for us. It seems like most times that we play, with the exception of the last time, I'm just going to say, um, and I've retired since then. Um, Wesley normally beats me. But what's interesting is in this game, you, it's, it's a board game. You play with cards, and the cards, you know, you have certain classes and races that you can fight as or that you can compete as. And uh, when you're doing these things, you can get bonus points. You can fight with stronger abilities. You know, you can, you can send curses to people and all this kind of stuff. You know, it's not, it's not as dark as de- and demented as I'm making it sound like it is. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a real fun game. It's a real great, great game. And Wesley usually wins. He usually beats me. And we're neck and neck. Sometimes he destroys me, but a lot of times we're neck and neck. And right when I'm about to win, he has this uncanny ability to play this card that just annihilates me. It just finishes me off. I mean, I'm, I'm there. I'm fighting at like a, a level 28. For those of you that know the game, that's, that's strong. That's stout. I mean, I'm fighting at a level 28, maybe a 30. Nothing can stop me but this one card that somehow Wesley has. Always. Always. He has that trump card always, and he plays it. But if he plays it too soon, it doesn't help him. If he plays it too late or if he's waiting to play it and I make my move to win, it did him no good. Timing, timing definitely matters. We don't take our kids to, we, we haven't taken our kids, or we haven't taken Calvin to, to Disney World. You know, timing matters there, right? Because he's not going to enjoy the rides because he's too young, therefore too small. So timing matters. A banana is best eaten with a little brownage on on the on the peel this timing is a the right time to eat that banana right <laughs> it appears rotten it appears rotten but uh the timing we, we we understand we understand timing and jesus is saying right here my time has not yet come he says the world cannot hate you but it hates me because i testify about it 
that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. This was not the first occasion. I told you that as far as time. Time for what? To what was Jesus referring? To go to the feast or to reveal his glory? Probably both. Probably both. What the brothers were asking, Jesus was not willing to do just yet. The time had not yet come. And there's, 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 there's uh, layers to this or levels to this. Because Jesus has revealed certain things about himself. He has performed miracles, right? He's done these things. He's changed water to wine. He teaches in a way that people marvel at, but they still refuse and disbelieve. He fed 5,000, probably upwards of 20, 25,000 people with five loaves and two fish, and still people don't believe. So he's shown some things, but he hasn't shown his full glory. He hasn't done that. And he wouldn't do that until, well, he hasn't done that yet, by the way. And we'll see that in just a minute. So I think it's both. I think, yes, in the context, it's clearly time to go up to the feast. But what would he be doing? What would he be revealing at the feast? He said, it's not time for me to reveal my glory. Jesus could have, Jesus could have made them see anything he wanted them to see. Jesus could have dictated every movement in every moment. And he could have said, look, you're going to believe whether you like it or not in that moment. He could have gone to the festival. He could have said everything that he wanted to say or he could have said nothing at all. And he could have commanded that everyone would respond in belief. He could have done those things. Jesus didn't do that. But you have to consider what that would necessarily mean if he would have gone and he would have revealed his glory. So let me explain this to you. Let me get you thinking on this. The last thing those people at the feast needed was for Jesus to come and reveal his true glory. And that might not land well with you at first but let me explain what I mean the book of Matthew chapter 24 verse 30 it speaks of the glory of Jesus and it says they shall see the son of man this is speaking in the future they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with glory with with power and great glory so that's not speaking of while he was on earth when it speaks of him coming in clouds and great glory it's speaking of his second coming this is when Jesus is going to unleash his full glory this is when people will truly see what the glory of Jesus i.e. the glory of God is and the problem is it would have devastated all of those in his presence if he would have done it right then and here's why because Matthew Matthew 24.30 is connected to Revelation 1.7. Listen to what Revelation 1.7 says. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Very familiar text. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. You see, if he would have shown his glory, if he would have shown his full and true glory to those people, it would have meant it's too late for them. Those who would not believe. Because at that point, those who are left in unbelief are those who will wail and those who will moan and those who will cry out because they did not receive Christ. They did not put on the Lord Jesus Christ and they did not believe on Him. So Jesus is cognizant of this. He says, my time's not yet come. I mean, there are, of course, layers. 
He's talking about the cross, but that's what Revelation 1-7 takes account of. It takes account of the cross. If Jesus had already been to the cross and then he comes post-cross and reveals his glory, those who don't believe, it's over. It's done. There's no more hope for them. But he has not returned in his glory. He has not divulged his full glory. So there is hope for all who would put on the Lord Jesus Christ and all who would believe. Timing is everything, and this is what Jesus is getting to because we're seeing uh, a snapshot of the nature of God. And that God's sovereignty, that God is working in time and he's causing things to come about and he is sovereign over that time. That everything has a significant point in time to happen. Everything is calculated, everything is strategic. Every moment and action that passes is perfectly calculated and executed according to the sovereignty of God. Whether seen or unseen, everything that happens And though that's hard for us to understand because in our mind we go to bad things. What do you mean this was calculated? These things? Well, it has to be. Otherwise, it's God just saying, oh, these things happened and what do I do with that? No, everything, everything in time happens at the say-so and the decree of God as the absolute sovereign over all things, especially and including time. When it seems that things happen at the worst possible time, rest assured that it was the best possible time. We just cling to truth. We just cling to what we know about God. You know, sovereign over time. He gives, he takes away all these things. Forget what you feel. Forget what you think you know. Forget what you would do. Forget how you would rule the universe. And just consider scriptures that show us over and over and over again that God is sovereign over time. And when all these things come into your life, rest assured that God is working and God is moving. And he's, he is many movements ahead of you. And so he's working all these things, especially for those who are his, working those things for good and always working for his glory. So there should be some comfort that comes to you in that. This is low-hanging fruit today. Let these things be a comfort. Our flesh kicks against this. If tomorrow you're diagnosed with some terminal illness, you know, you're, you're not going to feel super great. You're not going to say, oh, well, you know what, praise the Lord, his timing is wonderful. You're not going to feel like saying that. Cling to what you know. Cling to what has been revealed in truth. Cling to the character of God. Cling to the immutability or the unchangeableness of God and that he's working all things for good. He has your best interest in mind and take some comfort in that. Because this is what God has shown us regarding his character. God controls all things including times. He brings all things to pass for good and his glory. Consider that God knows all possible scenarios, right? He's omniscient. He knows all possible scenarios and he executes the best possible scenario for your good and his glory. If you're thinking about God and you're thinking about God's thoughts, even though his thoughts are not our thoughts, they're higher than our thoughts, obviously, but God always acts as a, his actions are always a byproduct of his nature, which is perfect. So everything is a product of his perfections everything that he does everything that we see everything that we see that we might say oh this is bad or I don't like this somehow some way God's working it as a product of his perfections he's doing these things and this is the worldview that we have to have God knows every scenario you could have gone this way this way or that way and God sovereignly is working to where you end up here because it's the best scenario for you and most importantly the best scenario for his glory and at the end of the day this is what God is working towards his glory and this is truth whether we think of God as a megalomaniac or not whether we think that 
heaven forbid or God forbid that he's an idolater because he wants worship for himself, which he's not. We can't impose human standards on God. God is the one who's worthy of worship, not you, not me, not anyone else, but God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You see, a worldview that sees the glory of God as preeminent above all things is essential for seeing the perfections of God's timing, for understanding that all things that come to pass are good for God's glory. They might be hard, but they're right for God's glory. I think we should be thankful that Jesus doesn't always give us what we ask for. Because in our minds, we have our timing, we have our schedules, what we want to do, what we want to come to pass. We have these plans. Planning is not bad. We must be cautious because the scripture warns us that we don't know what tomorrow may bring. For who knows? Well, it says, don't look towards tomorrow for you don't know what a day may bring. So there's a sentiment there that says, just be careful. Don't get so caught up in all your plans. Don't get so caught up in your will and executing what your will is. But know first and foremost that the will of God is that today that you live for that day, that you live today as if there is no other day. You live in the promise you have now, that you're breathing life now, so you have purpose now in your living, waking body to glorify God and seek to do those things. But what would happen if we got everything that we prayed for? I'll be the first to admit there were some girlfriends that I had many, many years ago that I did pray, and I said, well, this is, this is absolutely not a badge of honor, but in one relationship as a, as, a, as a young teenage boy even, or as a teenage boy, maybe not a young teenage boy, Lord, this is the one. Lord, I pray that you work it out. I pray that you work it out. And oh, oh, thank you, Jesus, that it didn't work out. And, and you know what? On that side, if she prayed the same thing, she's probably, oh, thank you, Jesus, <laughs> that, it, that it didn't work out. Right? I look at a, a, a lot, unfortunately, I look at a lot of relationships that I prayed that same thing. No, no, I'm sure about this one. I remember sitting in my pastor's office for a year, or several times actually, much to my chagrin, and saying, hey, Brother Mickey, this is the one. Brother Mickey, he would say, Boy, you're an idiot. You know, <laughs> out of love, I took it. It was great. You know, he's like, you think everybody's the one. You do understand that one means one, right? And so... We'd have this conversation. I'm like, but I know, Brother Mickey, I know. I got into college, a freshman year of college, and I was still dating kind of a high school sweetheart. I thought, this is it. I'm in college. What else are you supposed to do than get serious about marriage? Oh, dear Jesus, I'm so glad that God gave me Sarah. You know, not that these other girls were, were, were bad, but it would not have worked out. I might be dead. God's timing, God's way, God's plan, even though I think I know this is great. God, she, she meets the standard. Lord, I see it right here. You know, she's a Proverbs 31 woman. She's got it tattooed on her, on her back. You know, it's, that's her. But God shows me right there. Uh, God shows me everything. You know, I mean, or, 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 or God shows me this was, this was not right. We often make our request to God based on our own will and not his will, whether knowingly, whether it's knowingly or unknowingly. You know, what if, what if God would have given you that job that you, that you thought you needed and that you prayed for? You know, that, that career that you just knew that that's what God was calling you to, but in hindsight you'd see that, man, that would be disastrous. That would be a catastrophe. I'm so thankful that God doesn't answer my every prayer. <laughs> because my prayers are often rooted in my own will instead of trying to recognize and pursue God's will. So reality one is that 
God's sovereignty is in and over time and that God's timing and God's plan for all things are one and the same. And Jesus is saying this. He's saying, look, there is a plan. There is a time for me to reveal these things. There's a time for me to go to the cross. That's why over and over and over throughout the book of John, they're seeking to kill him, but they can't catch him. They can't get him. You know, one thing after another happens, sparing Jesus until the time where his life is not spared. All according to the plan and the purposes of God. So that's reality one. Reality two, this world is not compatible with Christianity. This world that we live in, this broken, fallen world, is not ours. We are sojourners. And where I get that is Jesus responds to his brothers and he says, your time is always here. He says, the world cannot hate you because you belong to it. The world won't hate you. You are one of its own. You belong to a world. It's not going to hate you. Listen, if you're not in Christ and you're not facing persecution for Christ, there's a reason for that. It's because you are of the world or you know someone that is of the world. The world is set against God. The world is set against the things of God. We are in a war and it's very real. We don't think of it that way because we have our modern comforts. We have a way of escaping this spiritual but very real reality, don't we? It's easy to get. I'm super guilty, whether it's Netflix or whether it's my job. Whatever it is, it's easy to escape those realities, but it does us good or it does us well to get sober and say, what's really going on here? And we cling to these words that Paul wrote to Ephesus and he says, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but there are deeper, bigger, badder things that we're fighting against. I get this image in my brain that there is this blood-soaked field and we are waging war. And it is a war of the highest degree. The most hostility is the most volatile encounter experience you could ever imagine. And this is what's happened to Absolutely opposing forces are fighting, are head-to-head right now and have been since the fall or whenever the enemy was cast out. The Lord didn't give us a date on that one. And this is what's been happening, and it's very real. We're instructed to gird ourselves, to, to armor up, to get ready to fight because this is where we are. Don't flee to comforts and don't space out and ignore the reality of things. But equip yourself, not just with the armor that will give you defense, but the, army, but the armor that will allow you to go on the offensive and to bring the attack, to bring the assault. Christian is not passive. It's not passive. There's no room for passivity when it comes to warfare, spiritual warfare. We have to be vigilant. We have to gird ourselves with all of these things as far as the armor of God so that we can fight. The earth is literally the spiritual battlefield to the high, of the highest degree. Light versus darkness. Good versus evil. But the brothers didn't have this concern. They didn't have the concern that, that the world would hate them. They didn't realize the warfare that was going on. And that's, that's probably what you might call the grace of God to the dead. To the spiritually dead because they don't know their lostness. They don't know that the wrath of God abides on them. And maybe that's grace that they don't know. But then it's grace that they would know. It's grace that they would know and they would see and they would learn and they would trust, that they would believe. 
and they would run to Jesus. The brothers didn't have this concern because they were still of the world at that point. They belonged to the world. The world does not hate its own in that sense. In that sense, it hates Jesus. It hates God because naturally it is to do so. It is the nature of things. It's not a learned response. It doesn't have to be taught. They don't have to be educated to hate God. We're born with that intrinsic to our nature because we've inherited the guilt of Adam. So in this text, it says the world will not hate you, but it hates me. So let's define that. Here it is. The general influence of evil over the unregenerate is what I'm speaking of, and I believe the text is speaking of when it says the world. Because you and I know people that aren't in Christ, but they don't walk around shaking their fist at God. Maybe they're genuinely nice and kind people who want to do nice and kind things for people, other people. And they don't look at you and scoff at you or mock you. They respect what you believe even though they don't hold to the same standard. And I'm not saying that every single person in the world is like foaming at the mouth like rabid dogs trying to sink their teeth into God Almighty. I'm not saying that. But here's the reality. When the Scripture speaks of our being brought out of death into life, it says that while we were enemies of God, that God rescued us while we were hostile towards God. It says that those who are not in Christ are hostile. And when he says that, he doesn't mean that you are in your mind thinking, I hate God, I want him to die, I want to kill all Christians. That's not the sentiment. That's definitely hostility, right? But he's talking about a posture or a disposition. Whether you feel it or think it or not, that is the position you have against God. Imagine someone that's fighting in a battle against another army. And they were drafted into this. They really don't want to be at a war. You know, they're not angry with anybody. But you know what? They've got to bear arms. They've got to fight because that's what they're to do because that's the side that they're on. And that's about the closest illustration I can think of off the top of my head for a lot of people that we encounter. They are still in opposition. Even if they don't feel in their mind, oh, I hate you, God. I want you to die. I want all these things or that are encamped around Christianity to just be done with. Maybe that's not their mentality, but they are still postured against God read Romans and you see it again and again and again which is why the gospel is paramount that we must go we must give the gospel obviously not every lost person embarks on an actively hostile crusade against Christ but they are by default positionally hostile nonetheless they hated Jesus and if they hate Jesus they'll hate us so I just want you to know that it should not come as a surprise to you that you encounter opposition. That while we stand for the unborn who can't stand for themselves, and though it's not engaging in a gospel conversation, standing on a, on a road if people don't want to engage, if there's just one that drives by, if there's just one that it connects with, if there's just one scripture that they see and it connects, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it as one method to communicate. But if nothing else, it's us not being silent. If nothing else, it's us saying, you know what? I'm going to stand here and I'm going to be a face. I'm going to be someone or somebody that they can look at and see that I side with life. As a Christian, I side with life. You see, in this war, there's some factors that we have to consider that are set against us. A, the broken human nature, and B, the enemy of God. The broken human nature. How could someone become so violent and hostile towards Christians who are sharing Christ and or representing the unborn, like I mentioned, in a protest against abortion, or et cetera, et cetera? Well, the outworkings of a dead heart, the byproduct of a human nature that 
still has a dead heart that has not been regenerated. And then we have the enemy of God working against us. Listen to how Peter describes the enemy. He says, be sober, be vigilant, uh, sorry, vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a lion. Why does he reference the enemy as a lion? Do you know who else is called a lion in the scriptures? Jesus. It's interesting that Jesus would be called a lion and that Satan would be likened unto a lion. You see, I believe that Satan is likened unto a lion because of the sheer ferocity and the sheer danger and the threat that he poses. Because a lion poses a threat. If you don't believe me, jump in the cage at the Greenville Zoo. You'll see. It poses a threat. There's a reason it's called the king of the jungle. There's a reason that it's at the top of the food chain now that the dinosaurs are gone. It's a big deal. And I think that's why Peter references the enemy as a roaring lion. Job even says, or God says that in, 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 the, book, well, in the book of Job, it says at the beginning that Satan had come from looking around for someone to devour. He was like a lion looking for someone to devour. His, his agenda is devastation. His agenda is hurt and destruction. And so he's dangerous. We don't play around with those things. I've heard people in college call out the devil and challenge the devil in their prayers. I'm like, you're a dummy. <laughs> Why are you doing that? You know, it's like, well, Lord, just put a hedge of protection around me. And they're sitting there just chewing out the devil. And I'm like, if you're going to pray like that, you might want more than a hedge. Let's build a wall. Let's do something that's going to be a little bit more protective. You know, you're, that's, that's, it's, it's foolishness because the enemy is dangerous but Jesus is also likened to, or Satan is likened to a lion, and Jesus is called a lion. And why is that? Because a lion is dangerous, but a lion is always looked at as the king, is also looked at as a king, the king of the jungle. So Jesus is referenced as the king, where Satan is referenced as someone or something that is dangerous. And I'm much more comfortable and confident in the power of a king that I am scared of someone that's like a lion looking for someone to devour. The scripture tells me greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's why ultimately our concern for the world and its hatred against Christianity should not overcome us. So here's some application for that reality. Be careful not to seek peace and comfort in a place that you do not belong if you are in Christ, you are a sojourner. This is not your home. Be careful. Be careful that you are trying to seek a peace and a comfort that you're not meant to find here. Yes, the Holy Spirit is a what? A comforter. The Holy Spirit is a person, and he is a comforter among other things. So there is that comfort that you can absolutely find. Jesus himself, the scripture says, is our peace. So there is a peace, but those statements are not, oh, then you'll have worldly peace you'll have these comforts it means no despite the war despite the reality that there is a roaring lion that is dangerous you can be comforted because you have the true king of all kings that is for you and not against you don't expect the world to roll out the red carpet for you. Don't expect the world to cushion your seat as you pass by because we are engaged in a war with a foe that hates your guts. This doesn't always come necessarily from direct persecution prompted by your 
uh, vocal profession of faith. Sometimes we think, well, the only time you're really going to suffer the attacks of the enemy is if you're out there standing and witnessing to people. That's where you'll suffer persecution when someone says, are you in Christ or not? And they put a gun to your head and said, however you respond will determine whether you live or die. It comes in more forms than that. You realize that the enemy is an opportunist. He's an opportunist. Evil sets its sights on you and capitalizes on you in any form, measure, or fashion that it can. It might be directly related to your Christianity. Well, it is. Or related to your profession of faith. It might be related to how vocal you are or active you are in your faith. But it also might come in in a different way. It might come in in the form of just attacking your marriage. Attacking your parenthood might come in the form of attacking your child and the way that you interact with your child and the way that you deal with your child and sometimes mamas and daddies feel like they're losing their kid and that may be a way that the enemy attacks that is evil and that's a part of being in this war that's why the bible addresses all these relationships and all these circumstances and says this is how you are to be this is your conduct because the gospel and its identity in you bleeds into every aspect of your life. There's a reason that we're instructed not to store up treasures on earth because those treasures aren't befitting for sojourners. Earthly treasures are meant for worldly people. Heavenly treasures, I should say this, earthly treasures that we seek to establish our joy. Because there's nothing wrong with having a house or having a vehicle. But when those are the root and the source of your joy, when those determine whether you have joy or not, those are worldly treasures that are idols. So reality, too, is this world is not compatible with Christianity because you are sojourners and this is not your home. And therefore, the world will hate you because you don't belong to it. You are aliens in a strange land to them. We see this all the time, do we not? We see this in racism. We see this something strange, something different, something new. We rebel or people rebel because it's different. I think there's a reason for all that. So the final reality is this. Christ's humility is marked not by his self-exaltation but by his God-exaltation. And this is what's great about Jesus. Jesus as the God-man who is giving us an example of what to follow. Jesus as the Son of Man. Jesus as a human, fully human, also fully divine. We see that, okay, we can't be God. We can't be perfect. We can't be all-powerful. But you know what we can be? We can be human because we're fully human. We got that going for us, you know, fortunately or unfortunately. And Christ sets this example, and he says basically what the Scripture is telling us. Look, if Christ is exhibiting humility and you are being conformed to the image of Jesus once you're in Christ, then you are to exhibit humility. You're to draw attention away from yourself and point the attention to Jesus, to his gospel, to where real hope is. And Jesus exemplifies this for us here. So let's move along in the text for this last point. After his brothers had gone up to the feast, he went up, not publicly, but in private. I think that's a part of the answer as to why Jesus goes up there after he says he doesn't, he says he's not going to go up there in the way or the fashion that they want. I think that's what that means. I haven't found any explanation otherwise, but I have found that as an explanation and a pretty consistent explanation. So I'm comfortable with that interpretation. So that explains. Jesus says, I'm not going, but then he goes. I'm not going for the reason you want me to go. I'm not going to reveal my glory. 
I'm not going that you might be puffed up or that you might be affirmed if that's what they were wanting. I'm not going for that reason. I'm going the way I want to go. In other words, he's going the way that the Father has determined for him to go. That's the same thing that happened in the wedding at Cana. He says, what does this have to do with me? This is not my problem. But he, he, he refills the wine anyway. Because he was not acting in accordance with his mother's will, but in accordance with his Father in heaven, with God's will. And it's the same thing here. He's not bending a knee and subjecting himself to the will of his brothers, but to the will of God the Father. And I think this is substantiated through this conversation that we're going to see and finish out with right here. So his brothers go up to the feast. Later, Jesus goes to the feast. Verse 11, Jesus, I'm sorry, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people while some said he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for the fear of Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man is, has learning when he has not studied or when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, here we go, my teaching is not my own. My teaching, here we see the humility of Christ. He says, my teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. He said, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So Jesus is attaching himself to the will of God the Father. This is a big deal. This is highly offensive. (laughs) He's saying, I'm saying what God has told me to say. That's where my authority comes from. So this was tremendously offensive to them and tremendously humble of Jesus the one who speaks on his own authority verse 18 seeks his own glory but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true and in him there is no falsehood does Jesus not deserve the glory why would Jesus say I'm not seeking my own glory when he's definitely worthy of being glorified let me just remind you of Revelation chapter 5 when all of heaven turns their focus to the Lamb who enters the room, and they sing a new song to Him. Jesus is worthy. Why is Jesus saying, ah, not me, it's God, the Father? Because in Jesus' humanity, He is setting the standard and the example for us to do the same thing. Jesus is not saying He's not worthy of it. But He's showing them, A, the subordinate relationship that He has assumed between God the Son and God the Father, a relationship that is somewhat similar to the relationship that you and I have in the sense that we are subordinate to God. And Jesus is exhibiting humility in that relationship paradigm because it's the same one that we have. Fully human. Zero divine. And God said, and we're, and we're to follow the, the example of Christ. Someone once said there was no pride of life in Jesus From his incarnation to his death, there wasn't a moment where Jesus sought the affirmation of men. He was born of humble means. His life was marked by humble means. Trust me. I mean, he was a carpenter. Carpenters are, we are, we are, we are, yeah, what we are. His life was marked by humble means. There's nothing to to parade about, nothing to write home about there. His death was marked by humble means. uh, Philippians 2 says he was humble to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the whole thing, the way he entered this world, the way he left this world was in humiliation. Coming as a baby, absolutely and utterly helpless, 
needing, truly depending on his earthly mother to provide and take care of him. All the way to, or, and then his death, where he's suspended on a cross, which was said to be one of the most humiliating deaths a man could ever die, or a woman for that matter, because they are completely stripped of their clothing, because it was to be made a spectacle. Now all the pictures that you've seen hanging in the hallways and the corridors of the churches that you've been a part of, you see a Jesus that at least has something around his, uh, something around his, you know, his, 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 his midsection, his, his groin area. But just know that crucifixion was typically done in the nude to embarrass the condemned. To make them suffer the, the, the social pain, the psychological pain, as if all the other pain and shame was not enough. Jesus goes to the festival, but he, is, he goes how he wants to go. He goes privately. He then begins to address the crowd, and they marvel. They are listening to Christ teach and seeing that he is pointing people to God. He's telling them that his teaching is not on his own authority. He's saying, listen, what I'm giving you comes directly from God the Father, which was offensive. Think of it this way. Rejecting the teaching of Jesus is what he was saying. Rejecting the teaching of Jesus would be to reject the teachings of God the Father. Now maybe you can see why this was so offensive to them. They're getting this. They're offended by this. Because they get it. He's saying, this is God's authority. If you reject what I'm saying, which they were, if you reject what I'm saying, you reject God the Father. And this was tremendously offensive. What he offers here is what's called a linchpin argument. He plays the trump card. Hey, this is directly from God. This is God. This is not me. This is God. So there you have it, right? It's like playing paper, rock, or paper, rock, and scissors with someone who makes a cross at the end. You know, you're trying to play paper, rock, scissors, and they say, Jesus, you know, it's like, you can't beat that. That's not fair. Let's stick with the, you know, let's stick with the, with the default apparatus, okay? So paper, rock, and scissors or like a boyfriend and a girlfriend who's pukishly try to one-up each other by saying, I love you. No, I love you more. No, I love you. No, I love you more, which I'm guilty of with one of those 17 girls I thought I was going to marry. So, no, I love you more. Wouldn't it be funny for just once somebody to say, you know what? You do love me more because you are crazy. So, you know, it probably wouldn't go well for them, but that's the idea. You play this trump card. You can't, you can't, well, when someone says, I love you more. No, I love you. No, I love you times infinity. Okay. I don't love you that much. So, you win. I'm cynical and I'm sorry. You know, maybe I shouldn't say these things when I'm preaching, but that's, uh, you know, I do, love, I do love my wife times infinity. So Christ, although fully God, is revealing his position of subordination to the Father. This is important. Last theological note before we, before we make, our, make our landing here. This is called the hypostatic union of Christ. If you've never heard of this, which you should have because you've heard me say it, but if you're new here and you haven't heard of this, this is simply the explanation that Jesus can be fully God and fully man. This is how we look at the scriptures and Jesus calls himself the son of God. And he's referred to as the son of God, but Jesus also calls himself the son of man. How do you reconcile those two? The only way to reconcile those two is by seeing that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. He's both, absolutely, in total. He's full, complete. And this is a major theological distinction we must make. As a man, Christ submitted himself to the will of God the Father. As a man, Christ subjects himself to the authority of God the Father. And as a man, Christ seeks to bring glory to God the Father. Jesus labors, labored to point people to God the Father. So what does this behavior of the Son teach us? It teaches us that Christ's humility sets the standard 
for our behavior as Christians. That our every effort should be spent aligning our will with the will of God as best as we can see it, especially as it's revealed in the Scriptures. And things that may not be revealed in the Scriptures, things that aren't answered for us in the Scripture, like career choices or marital choices or things of that nature, and we just rely and trust on the nature of God, and we rely on the fact that He has His best interest and that He will make provisions and show us what is next with patience and in our seasons of waiting. This teaches us that we should labor over the Scriptures so that we might understand more the nature and heart of God in order to conform to His will because this is where God has mostly revealed Himself. If Jesus' agenda was to point people to God the Father, shouldn't our agenda be to point people to Jesus? Absolutely. Jesus has modeled these things. Jesus, who's worthy of all the glory, said, don't give me the glory. Not yet. His glory has not been revealed yet. It's coming. He says, my authority is God the Father's. It's his will that I'm here to do. And I subject myself to him. So we, in like fashion, subject ourselves to the will of God in following Christ as we are conformed to his image. Jesus appealed to a greater authority. Although he was equal, he appeals to the positional authority of God. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Fully equal to God the Father. Fully equal to God the Holy Spirit. But positionally, he changed. He didn't change in his being. He didn't change in who he was. He changed where he was. He left heaven. He left close proximity, as it were, to, to, to God the Father from eternity past. And he came to dwell in the trenches. And so that was lesser position, but not lesser in being. To what authority do you appeal and to what authority do I appeal? As I think the questions we should be asking ourselves. I think we tend to become our greatest authority when it comes to things that we want. We can rationalize and say, well, this is really God's will, but we're saying it's really my will. We need to be very, very focused on the authority of God and what he has shown to be the will for our lives. When God's will doesn't satisfy our will, we are prone to shift allegiances and submit to a different authority. In a worldly system, in a U.S. governmental system, we would call that treason. And there is no higher degree of treason when we would forsake God and cling to man. When we would say, God, I want what's best for me, but I determine what's best for me. Despite what's clear, despite what may have been revealed. And we cling to the world and its treasures. There's no higher form of treason than that. There's no greater act to follow. There's no greater hero to worship. And no better standard to emulate. The Christian looks most like Jesus when he or she is pointing others to Jesus. The mark of a Christian should never be self-exaltation, but always Christ-exaltation. As John has said, I must decrease so that he increases. Or I must decrease and he, Jesus, must increase. For God's glory and for the sake of the world. Let's pray. Father, you are great.